Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder and portfolio manager of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual securities should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. Welcome to the finale of Season 2. In this episode, we speak with Robert Bruner, who is the co-author of The Panic of 1907, Lessons Learned from the Market's Perfect Storm. He is university professor at the University of Virginia, distinguished professor of business administration, and dean emeritus of the Darden School of Business. It was a pleasure to speak with Mr. Bruner, who has distilled lessons from past financial crises and, moreover, identified the broad patterns that investors should be aware of. The following are a few thoughts from one of his blog posts. Respect history. To do so doesn't discount the present or ignore the future. It enhances your ability to perform in them. Credit is due to Dr. George Athanasakos, who commented on the Panic of 1907 during our conversation in Episode 1 of the season. It was his comments during the interview that provided me with the idea to read the book and reach out to the author. This interview was recorded in January, and it just so happens that the second edition will be released next week, on March 8, 2023. Links have been posted in the show notes for those who wish to order Mr. Bruner's new book or who would like to read his blog posts. Thank you, Robert, for joining me in this episode. For the benefit of those who have not yet read The Panic of 1907, can you please provide an overview of it and the key causes of the crisis? The Panic of 1907 is one of the most important financial crises in the history of the United States, and indeed it spilled over to other parts of the world. The panic began with a boom uh, lasting 10 years, then a sudden shock in the form of the San Francisco earthquake in April 1906. The shock led to a credit crunch that destabilized the financial system, and then a second shock on October 15, 1907, consisting of a failed attempt to corner the stock in United Copper Company, led to runs on banks and trust companies in New York City. The runs began to spread. J.P. Morgan intervened by organizing pools of rescue money with which to restabilize various financial institutions. And um, he worked hard at that for the next month or so. Eventually, things calmed down. The U.S. government, indeed, for the first time, injected cash into the financial system through the national banks in New York City. So through a combination of the Secretary of Treasury and J.P. Morgan, gradually the crisis was quelled. But The crisis had a very long tail. It led to a deep recession that bottomed out in June of 1908. It led to extensive reconsideration of the adequacy of financial regulation in the United States, as well as management of the money supply in the United States, resulted in a couple of very provocative congressional hearings, and then the development of legislation to found the Federal Reserve System in 1913. So arguably, this crisis, though it had a brief epicenter of a month or five or six or seven weeks truly had a long tail in advance and a long tail beyond. So in order to really understand the crisis, you must not merely study the the epicenter of the crisis. You have to look at the forerunners and the consequences. There are many causes to the crisis of 1907. I'll give you three. One is, as I mentioned, a long boom. The American economy grew at an astonishing 6.5% annual growth rate from 1897 to 1906. This is a growth rate that China and India today would uh, be envious of. Indeed, the United States at that point in history was the equivalent of a rapidly growing emerging economy today. 
And rapid growth accomplishes many things, but it also tends to breed over-optimism. It breeds over-investment, and it can create a demand for swindles for people who are gullible people who are looking to get rich quick. Sure enough, this rapid growth ultimately began to weaken the financial system. It strained the financial system. Banks had lent more money than they should have. Some players in the markets had borrowed more money than they should have. People weren't ready then for the second main cause of the crisis, which was the San Francisco earthquake of April 1906. The San Francisco earthquake magnetically drew capital from all over the world as insurance policies were called in. This caused central banks in Europe to raise interest rates and to take actions that were averse to the financial system of the United States. It ultimately deepened the strain on the U.S. financial system. By the summer of 1907, major companies were finding it difficult to raise money. Railroads, which had very optimistic expansion plans, were beginning to cut them back. Companies were beginning to pay dividends. And uh, New York City attempted to place bonds and failed on two occasions that summer of 1907. In the fall of 1907, some financial entrepreneurs decided that they would try to corner the market in the shares of United Copper Company. And to do so, they bought shares aggressively on borrowed money. Their belief was that the pricing of the shares had been uh, the consequence of short sellers, and uh, they wanted to uh, punish the short sellers. So they intended to buy up lots of shares and then suddenly call them for delivery. By calling them in suddenly, they hoped to force the short sellers to show up on their doorstep pleading for accommodation and and ultimately providing big profits to the architects of this corner. In the event, that operation failed, and it turned out the depressed pricing in United Copper Company was not the result of short sellers, but the result of of an increasingly depressed market in uh, copper. As a result, the architects of the corner declared bankruptcy. A couple of brokerage houses that had executed the attempted corner also uh, declared bankruptcy and worried people in the financial community then began to look beyond to the financial institutions that might have provided credit in support of the attempted corner. They hadn't looked no further than a person named Augustus Hines, who had been a very successful mining executive in Montana and had brought his newfound wealth to New York City in a desire to establish his place as one of the leaders of banking in the nation's financial center. So Augustus Hines had bought controlling interests or large percentage interests in a number of financial institutions. And with the collapse of the attempted corner at which Augustus Hines was at the center, the public looked at all of the financial institutions in which he had an interest and they began to withdraw their deposits. So you have a weakened financial system. You have two shocks. Finally, uh, as a third concern, I would merely highlight the fact that the financial system in the United States that day and in New York in particular was highly fractionalized. Yes, it was concentrated in to the extent that a few large financial institutions had special influence. But in fact, there were many, many small and medium-sized banks and trust companies. And the trust companies were new kinds of financial institutions that uh, were not heavily regulated and that tended to pay interest on deposits, on checking account deposits, and perhaps deployed their uh, cash into somewhat more aggressive assets. So when the runs began on the financial institutions, the trust companies really got hammered. And indeed, they were the first ones to begin to fall. 
J.P. Morgan began to organize the rescues for the trust companies and for some of the banks. And as the book recounts, he attempted to form a mutual aid program among the trust companies, believing that the healthy trust companies would rally to the support of the weak ones. But in fact, there was a great deal of distrust among the trust company CEOs, and they were quite reticent to commit the funds of their own individual institutions in support of the weakest trust companies. So J.P. Morgan called on his banking friends, and together they pooled funds to rescue one trust after another. The long and the short of it is, this is a story about a weak system, several shocks, how shocks propagate, how difficult it is to organize attempts to quell a financial crisis. And at the heart of all crisis fighting efforts is an effort to form collective action, to get the players to come together, to organize together, to move together and deploy funds together in ways that regain the confidence of depositors and investors, not only in the narrow canyons of Wall Street, but more importantly, nationwide. The book details not only the New York events, but also the impact of the crisis nationally and internationally. There are shared patterns between the Panic of 1907 and the crisis that happened 100 years later that were striking, and it seems the general setup was quite similar in that strong growth led to overconfidence and a lack of safety buffers, which then rendered the system vulnerable to an external shock. So how would you compare and contrast the two crises? So the two crises are similar in some respects and different in others. The similarities uh, are, as you readily acknowledge in the boom, the the strains induced by the, the boom that are imposed on the financial system. Another similarity between the two, and one that I could have highlighted in my remarks a moment ago, is that crises tend to break out in the periphery of the financial system. Rarely do they break out in the center, the well-known, well-followed, highly scrutinized financial institutions, the largest institutions at the center. And so what we might call the shadow financial system out there in the shadows of the entire financial system tend to be where crises break out. And the reason for that is a chain is only as as strong as its most vulnerable link. And similarly, a financial system is only as strong as its most vulnerable institutions. The most vulnerable institutions tend to be new. They tend to be small. They tend to be less regulated. They tend to be institutions driven by very aggressive leaders who want to grow rapidly, perhaps grow faster than their companies can allow. So we saw that in 1907, the trust companies were the shadow institutions of the day. In 2008, the shadow institutions were out there in the subprime mortgage market, both mortgage originators as well as hedge funds that invested in subprime mortgages. Of course, larger institutions backed those firms out in the shadows. As the shadow institutions began to totter and fail, the contagion spread to the larger institutions. And uh, there you see a parallel between 1907 and 2007-89. The big difference between the two is the presence of the Federal Reserve System in the 2000s. There was no manager of the financial system or of monetary resources in 1907 on par with the Federal Reserve System. In, in 1907, I should add, there was the controller of the currency who audited national banks and insisted on national banks holding adequate reserves, but there was no manager of reserves. There was no lender of last resort in 1907 as there was in the crisis of 2008. By 2008, of course, the federal government had survived through 
the glaring crisis of the Great Depression and through the, the programs of Franklin D. Roosevelt and subsequent presidents, the federal government had grown to occupy a place of kind of a macroeconomic manager of the U.S. economy through fiscal policy and then through the Fed's management of monetary policy. So there was greater confidence in the ability of the federal government to respond to the crisis in 2008. But even then, the incredible power of the U.S. government in 2008 was not sufficient to prevent a meltdown of Bear Stearns, a meltdown of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, a meltdown of Lehman Brothers or of AIG, and a near meltdown of Citigroup, and a near meltdown of General Motors. We could go on and on. So what had happened in between 1907 and 2008 was the U.S. economy had grown incredibly. It's much larger. The institutions were bigger. The financial institutions had committed more funds in support of clients. The agencies of the federal government were prepared to respond to crises on par with whatever the last war, quote unquote, was. And the big last war was the Great Depression. But by 2008, the absolute dollars involved in the crisis of 2008 were vastly greater than anything seen before in U.S. history. Furthermore, the U.S. economy was vastly more complex. There were new shadow institutions. Uh, there were new unusual kinds of financial instruments, credit to default obligations, which Warren Buffett likened to weapons of mass destruction, very, very difficult to understand with very odd consequences in the event of a failure. As the crisis really began to gather steam in 2007, the leaders of the U.S. Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve System awakened to the need to respond. But in fact, the playbook for response was designed along the lines of earlier crises rather than along the lines consistent with the size and complexity of the U.S. economy at the day. I'd like to move on to the second edition of the book, which will soon be released. What have you learned in the 15 years since the first edition? And what are the general areas of the book that were updated for the second edition? The second edition of The Panic of 1907 is a major enhancement over the first edition. When our book was published in 2007, it gained a great deal of interest at that date, and then even more interest a year later during the depths of the crisis of 2008. As it happened, the book generated new interest among researchers, both academicians as well as specialists in the agencies of the U.S. federal government. It prompted an outpouring of new research. I count over four dozen major new research papers that helped to illuminate the events of 1907. In addition to that was an opening up of more archives of the federal government, the availability of more financial data. Colleagues at other universities have managed to recover and dip into the syndicate books of J.P. Morgan and Company and some of the other financial institutions and all of these new resources shed new light on the crisis itself, on the origins and on the long-term consequences. As I surveyed the mounting volume of new insights, I decided that to really convey the full story about the Panic of 1907, we needed to update the first edition and bring all of these new research insights into the book. And so we've done that. In addition, we've added some new research of our own, looking at the response of the Bank of England to various aspects of the crisis. And indeed, the crisis radiated back to the Bank of England, which 
in the day, in 1907, was the central banker to the world. And as has been said in different ways, you know, when the Bank of England sneezed, the world caught cold. And sure enough, the troubles in the United States radiated back to the Bank of England. And our study shows that the consequence, the loss of gold reserves by the Bank of England exceeded a very deep decline, a very deep limit in the bank's gold reserves, statistically speaking, that understandably prompted the Bank of England to react with fervor to the emerging crisis. It raised interest rates in Britain, which radiated back to the U.S. It uh, limited gold shipments to the U.S. and uh, generally created an atmosphere of adversity between the central banker of the world, and and here, the U.S., which had a nearly limitless appetite for new capital. The book also sheds light on a theme that emerges in much of the new papers regarding the trust companies themselves. One of the papers by Bradley Hansen reveals that the trust companies were not a unified group. In fact, they were spread all over Manhattan, all over New York City, and uh, that some trust companies had been founded back in the mid-1860s, 1870s, 1880s, and other trust companies were quite new. And the newest trust companies tend to be headquartered up in the retail districts of New York City in midtown Manhattan, closer to the homes and the townhomes of the newly wealthy in New York City. So the trust companies tended to be divided into two groups, those who performed financial services on a wholesale basis for corporate clients versus those who provided financial services for the retail clientele, the carriage trade, so to speak. And sure enough, the research, as Bradley Hansen shows, that the the retail oriented trust companies really got hammered in the crisis. My co-author, Sean Carr, and I do some more statistical research to confirm that and to reject the notion that, in fact, the institutions that got hammered were just cronies of J.P. Morgan and his circle. That's an important subtext to this whole book, this whole episode, of course. Subsequent to the crisis, the panic of 1907, there was a great deal of discussion in the halls of Congress as well as in the public press about whether the crisis had just arisen out of bad economic luck or whether maybe the financial oligarchs of the United States, J.P. Morgan and his circle, had engineered the crisis in an effort to strengthen their vice-like grip on the financial system of the U.S. This was the heyday of populism, of progressivism, and uh, many, many uh, conspiracy theories about who was controlling the financial system of the U.S. And so in the wake of the crisis, Congress held hearings oriented toward trying to establish linkage between J.P. Morgan and the crisis. They never were able to establish such linkage. It doesn't prove that it didn't exist, but for all of their efforts and resources to ferret out the facts, they came up with nothing. But the notion of whether these institutions out there in the periphery, out there in the shadows of the New York financial system were uh, undercapitalized and too aggressive in their lending and therefore deserve to be hit in a crisis or whether they were victims of a larger malevolent conspiracy is something we illuminate in more detail in the book. Well, having recently read the first edition and listening to the points you just made, it sounds like the book has been majorly overhauled to include a lot of new content. So I look forward to reading the new edition soon. But before we conclude, I have one more question. 
anyone who studies history would gain awareness of patterns to avoid on a personal level, such as speculation in stocks of heated sectors, and moreover, borrowing money to do so. You wrote that financial crises are a naturally recurring feature of market economies and that there is no silver bullet. Is it your view then that ultimately it is up to each individual to self-moderate and act counter-cyclically to avoid the inherent pain that comes along with downturns? Can anything be done better by governments to moderate the pain? Here we are in 2023, and since 2008, we've had another crisis in March of 2020. At the onset of the COVID pandemic, there was a frantic dash for cash by investors and depositors all over the world who sought to liquidate investments of all kinds, even U.S. Treasury securities. And this famous dash for cash put an immense strain on the U.S. and global financial systems, only by very difficult labors by the Fed and the U.S. Treasury and other authorities was the crisis averted. This could have been a very serious outbreak. But the consequence of that and the consequence of the government response to the crisis in 2008 is perhaps a growing confidence on the part of the average person on Main Street that the government will always step in. The government will always save our bacon in the next financial crisis and that therefore we shouldn't bother with trying to be defensive, etc. My co-author and I do take a different view, and the view is informed by the long history of financial crises, both in the United States and internationally. There are numerous financial crises. They happen frequently. They happen all over the world. There is nothing, virtually nothing, we can do to prevent them from breaking out so that much of what we need to attend to are processes of quelling crises, of forestalling their worst impacts, rather than attempting to prevent them altogether. But lurking in this issue of crises always breaking out is a uh, problem of moral hazard. Uh, Moral hazard is the consequence of financial crisis uh, responses by governments. Moral hazard, especially rescues of financial institutions, can generate a belief that the, the government will always rescue, the government will always step in, the government will always forgive debt, and the government will always flood the markets with more money. To a certain extent, that has become the, the dominant logic even among crisis fighters. On the other hand, it has to be true that the most prudent way to position yourself in the face of future crises is to keep some portion of a portfolio in ready money, in near liquid funds, low risk funds. I tell my students, I'm not, by the way, I'm not a registered investment advisor, so I'll tell you what I tell my students and what I do myself, but it is to keep six to 12 months worth of living expenses in ready money, but in a safe place, not to be called on for daily spending, but rather harbored for a buffer against financial shocks. And secondly, to invest in a portfolio of securities well diversified across industries, potentially across countries, and then uh, essentially to listen to the very best financial advisors, but not trade frequently. To find a money manager for your funds who can who through demonstrated past performance and uh, attributes of character indicates an ability to manage funds prudently and very artfully. If you save and invest through crises, through good times and bad, by the time you retire, you will be much better off than you would be if you simply relied on whatever social security might provide in retirement. So consistent, Stephen, with your query, yes, I think every investor needs to set aside some rainy day money so that he or she does not have to rely on the kindness of strangers. That's all very sound advice, Robert. 
Thank you again for joining us today, and I wish you the best of luck in the launch of the second edition of The Panic of 1907. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I wish you and all of your listeners great investing success. Take care. Thank you for listening to Season 2 of Value Investing, The Starvine Way. We will return later in the year with a new round of episodes in the third season. In the meantime, you can reach us at podcast at starvinecapital.com and sign up for the distribution list at www.starvinecapital.com. Mm-hmm.